Hello, how are we? I'm really sorry, I've lost my voice for the last two days and um, I've just drunk four litres of water to try to make it better. Um, it's meant I've gone to the bathroom three times in the last half an hour, but I don't know if it's helped my voice. Um, it's great to be here. I love this place. I love this community. Is anyone here watched the movie The Fast and the Furious or any of the movies The Fast and the Furious? They're all the same. They have no plot. They're ridiculous. Um, but there's one scene which I just thought was the most ridiculous scene ever. Check out this. It only goes for about 15 seconds. This is, I don't even know what movie it's from. Check it out. Does anyone remember that? Is that the most ridiculous thing ever? At that point, I realised they weren't taking themselves too seriously. So in honour of The Rock, I've decided to come up with my top 10 uh, rock jokes for you to kick off. To be honest, they're just Chuck Norris jokes that I've changed to The Rock to try to make it a bit more modern. Okay, number 10, are you ready? Number 10, The Rock doesn't breathe, he holds air hostage. Number 9, The Rock can divide by zero, that's a mass gag, did anyone get that? Yeah, thank you. There's about four of us. We can hang out later. Number, number eight, the rock can hear sign language. Number seven, the rock is the reason that Wally is hiding. Number six, the rock once beat the sun in a staring contest. Number five, when the zombie apocalypse starts, the rock won't have to try and survive. The zombies will. Number four, the rock can kill your imaginary friends. Number three, the rock tells Simon what to do. Number two... The Rock and Chris Hemsworth walked into a room. That room was instantly destroyed as that level of awesome cannot be contained in one building. And number one, The Rock puts laughter in manslaughter. You're not really meant to say that in church, but... Um, for years and years, the church has been teaching people about prayer... And in order to get people to pray, what pastors or people in spiritual authority often do is they say things like, you should have a quiet time. Has anyone ever heard that? It's kind of a church jargon thing. If you're not a Christian or, or someone who doesn't really come to church, then um, you may not have heard that. Or they might talk about you know, uh, this idea that, look, prayer doesn't really change circumstances. Prayer doesn't really change things. Prayer doesn't really change God. Prayer changes us. And they would very much talk about personal transformation. And it's in that personal transformation that you are meant to embark on this journey of prayer. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Does prayer change me? Does prayer change the person praying? Yes. But my job tonight, my goal tonight, is to convince you that prayer does way, way, way more than just change you that is way, way, way better than just a means of personal transformation. I want to do everything I can to beat into my head because I keep forgetting this and to do everything I can to, I guess, convince you that I think there is something way more to prayer than just changing you as a person. That there could actually be a God on the other side of our prayers who listens and responds because we pray in a way that He would not have responded or acted if we did not pray. Now, already you're getting very controversial and it's only going to get worse, so I apologise. So, Ian Bounds said this. He wrote about 10 books on prayer. They're all exceptional. He said this. We have much fine writing and learned talk about how prayer serves its full measure of results, not by affecting God, but by affecting us, by becoming a training school for those who pray. How well all this may look and how reasonable soever it may seem, there is nothing of it in the Bible. 
the clear and repeated language of the Bible is that prayer is to be answered by God. That as a Father, He gives to us when we ask, the best praying therefore is the praying that gets an answer. Andrew Murray, another person who wrote about eight books on prayer, he's actually a Reformed Calvinist and he said this, we need this simple, confident faith that God will give us what we ask for. God's Word, the Bible, provides everything needed to stir and strengthen such faith in us. Scripture shows us how God is waiting, delighting to bestow these blessings in answered prayer. In a thousand promises and testimonies, it urges us to believe that prayer will be heard. There is a God on the other side and that what we cannot possibly do for ourselves can be done by prayer. So my goal tonight is very simple. I'm going to talk a lot of theology. It's going to be fairly fast. We're going to move through a lot of stuff. I won't have time to unpack it properly. I apologise for that. But if I can just do one thing tonight, I want to remind myself, because I forget this all the time, that prayer is not just about personal transformation. There is a God on the other side who can listen and respond. And ultimately, my goal is to prove to you that prayer is more powerful than the rock. Isn't that exciting? Okay, number one, here's four things. Our prayers can get God to do His will. Our prayers can get God to do His will. Now, we often hear people say, well, you know, that thing didn't work out. That didn't really go the way I wanted. It must not have been God's will. You heard people talk like this? It must not have been God's plan. Um, I had a friend at school and uh, his mum uh, was a little bit embarrassing. One day my friend Jay decided, well, he used to catch the bus every day on the way to school and he'd catch the bus and he'd go up to the bus driver, he'd swipe his card or whatever it was um, and then he'd walk all the way up to the back of the bus and he'd sit with the cool kids and, you know, the bus would take off. On this one particular day, as the bus driver's taking off from the bus stop, he sees behind him this crazy car that's honking its horn and flashing its lights. And the bus driver's like, what the heck's going on? He's trying to work out his rear vision mirror. All the students are like, I don't know what's going on here. Anyway, eventually the bus driver decides, I think I need to pull over. So the bus driver pulls over. Out of this car steps my friend's mother, wearing a nightie. She walks up to the bus driver. Excuse me, Mr. Bus Driver, my son Jay has forgotten his lunch. She walks all the way down past all the students, gives him his lunch, gives him a kiss and then says, have a nice day. Now that was not a nice day for my friend Jay. It doesn't take too much to convince you that God's will is not being done. Now that already is controversial. But this is what Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 9 to 10. Our Father in heaven... He says to pray, hallowed be your name. And this is the kind of stuff that India was focused on last week about God's character and his heart. Then he says, your kingdom come. The kingdom of God is just the rule of God in the hearts and minds of men and women. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, what we are asking is God to take control in a sense. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why does Jesus tell us to pray that? Because God's will is often not being done on earth as it is in heaven. This world is not that similar to heaven. This world is not that like heaven. When we see this world, there are glimpses of heaven, but most of what happens down here is not according to God's will. 
It is not like God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. If it was, we wouldn't need to pray. Now, before Jordan hits the screen here, let me ask you a question. Who is the God of this world? It's weird, hey, right? We learn over and over again, if you're not a Christian, if you're not really a church person, you learn, well, you know, God is this some God of the Bible. I don't even know if there's one God, many gods, whatever, but I'm coming to a Christian church. They probably think it's the God of Jesus. He's the God of this world. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says Satan is the God of this world. Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of the air and Satan is the ruler of this world. Now, how do we make sense of this? I mean, last week, India talked about how God is all powerful and he's merciful, but he's like, the Jews weren't even really brave enough to even say his name. Like it was this, this great God who's above all names, above all other gods. How is it that now we've got Satan as the God of this world when Yahweh or the God of the Bible, the God of Jesus is meant to be the God of this world? How does this make sense? Um, I need uh, to do an illustration. It's actually, Rosie, can you come up? Because I know you can sing. I only know you can sing because everyone else tells me I can, you can sing. Now, the reason I don't know is because I am tone deaf. All I need you to do is prove to people that I'm tone deaf. It's going to be very easy because I can barely even speak tonight. But can you just sing a note for me? Uh, uh, that's not a note. I'm just thinking. Okay. Uh, I don't care. I have a note. Uh... Uh, is that right? Yeah, okay, okay, okay. Okay, you can sit down. Okay, right. Okay. Now, here's the problem. Not only did I not hit that note, but I only know that I didn't hit that note because you laughed, right? I can't even tell if I hit that note or not. When you're a zero out of 10, you don't even know who the eights and nines are, right? I'm a zero out of 10 for fashion. I never go shopping alone. This is the rule. If you're one out of 10, you're dangerous. You think you know what you're doing. Now, I have been involved in starting several churches, and when you start something, you get to be in charge. So um, we just started church out at Carmichael College four or five weeks ago. And um, I've been putting everything together. Technically, you know, not just me, it's someone else with me. But when I started church, when I've been involved in starting a church, I'm in charge of the music. Now I have the authority over all the music, the songs, everything that gets done. But I would be an idiot if I put my hands on the music and the worship. So it is possible to have authority over something and not have your hands on it. Is this making sense? It is possible to have authority over something and to use a word that's probably a bit controversial, but not be controlling it. We know that Jesus has all authority on heaven and earth. But that does not mean his hands are on everything. God can leverage everything for good, but he does not control everything and make everything happen. It is often not happening according to his will. Now, I want you to be excited today. I had diagrams that moved, but we couldn't get PowerPoint working. So you just have to go without the diagrams. Imagine that uh, this is heaven and this is the world. According to the Bible, Satan is the God of this world. So if we go, come, Satan comes in. Now, why do we pray? We are praying because we want what? God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
we are asking Jesus, would you exert your authority over Satan and would you break into human history and orchestrate and take control and put your hands on the hearts and minds of men and women and the circumstances surrounding them. So when we pray, we are asking God, break in, do your will, break in, take control of this situation, break in, take control of that person's heart and mind, break in, shape that person's will. We are asking Jesus to exert His will over Satan so that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is this making sense? Again, second thing, our prayers can get God to change the course of history. Does anyone here watch a show called The Flash? It is seriously lame. It is more lame than Fast and the Furious. I'm going to show you a clip. This is just lameville tonight. Check this out. Cool. So um, that's pretty emotional actually for The Flash. So, <clears throat> um, uh, Some friends and I who um, were maths, physics nerds, we went to uni together, and um, we were watching a show involving, involving time travel, and I remember um, something like this came up, and an argument breaks out amongst the nerds about whether this could actually happen. I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation. If you haven't been in a conversation like this before, be thankful. So we're watching this show about time travel. An argument breaks out. The video is paused. The DVD is paused. I'm not even making this up. Pen and paper is being brought out, and diagrams are being constructed. And then you know it's getting serious because Back to the Future got referenced as a source of authority, right? If you want to win an argument about time travel, you reference Back to the Future. Um, I don't know if I can really explain how this works. And I don't, I'm not saying God goes back in time or whatever. But what I do think is fairly clear from several parts of the Bible is that our prayers can change the course of history. So our prayers can change the future. Let me see if I can explain. There's this really obscure passage in Matthew 13 uh, where Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple and he says, How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be the days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. So... Without going into the massive background of this, and it's kind of debate about whether this is a prophetic word about something that's going to happen at the end or whatever. But basically what we've got here is a situation where God has said something will happen. So let me see if I explain using the diagram, right? We come back to our diagram. God has said certain things of his own sovereign will are going to happen no matter what. So God decided, uh, next slide, that Adam and Eve that would be created. Uh, if you just keep going, he decided Abraham would be the father of many nations, that David would become king, that Jesus, would, uh, Mary would give birth to Jesus, that Jesus would die on, on the cross and rise again. And God has decided, or God decided, depending on how you interpret this passage, that the destruction of the temple would occur. So much so that Jesus was prophesying. He's saying this will happen and the destruction of the temple will be such a bad time, especially for pregnant women and nursing mothers, it will never be equaled again. Now this is a sovereign event, it's going to happen no matter what. But what's interesting is this, Jesus says what? Pray that it will not take place in winter. 
So even though this last event is sovereign, God says when you pray, you can shift the timing of that event from winter to summer. Now that is ridiculous. God decided before the beginning of time, Jesus prophesied this is going to happen no matter what. But your prayers can step in and because you pray, you can change when this happens. C.S. Lewis tried to explain it like this. God has not chosen to write the whole history with his own hand. Most of the events that go on in the universe are indeed out of our control, but not all. It is like a play in which the scene and the general outline of the story is fixed by the author, but certain minor details are left for the actors to improvise. It may be a mystery why he should have allowed us to cause real events at all. But it is no odder that he should allow us to cause them by praying than by any other method. He made his own plan or plot of history such that it admits a certain amount of free play and can be modified in response to our prayers. Thirdly, our prayers can destroy satanic opposition. Um, for years, I was told, um, after becoming a Christian, that Satan was a real person and that he roamed the earth with his demons and that if you're a Christian, he couldn't really hurt you, that Satan is the father of lies, he is a deceiver, and all he has is a lie. That's all he can do. That's not true. <laughs> you read Job. Satan kills people. Like Satan can do a lot more than just deceive people and lie. Now, what's interesting is this really, again, this obscure passage in the book of Daniel, where Daniel prays to God. And this is what happens. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation, God says something to Daniel, gives Daniel a vision, is given to Daniel. Its message was true and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you. And stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stopped trembling. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief priests, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. I'll see if I can explain this. Hopefully it will make a bit of sense. We just go to the diagram. So basically what happens is Daniel gets this vision from God. He doesn't understand what it means. So he says to God, can you explain the vision to me? So he asks God to explain it. But what happens is God begins to answer. He does this by sending an angel. This angel is going to appear to Daniel and explain the vision. While on his way to Daniel, a demon, right, called the Prince of the Persian Kingdom, a demon comes along, intercepts that angel. This is so freaky. I'm so sorry if this is your first time to church, right? 
So a demon intercepts that angel and stops that prayer being fulfilled. There are prayers, according to this, there are prayers I've prayed and prayers that you have prayed where God has said yes, but because of satanic opposition, we have never seen the outcome come to fruition. I can't explain this. I don't even pretend to even, like my mind blows when I think of this, right? But this seems to be what it's saying. But Daniel fasted and prayed for 30 days. On the 30th day, God then sent another angel to overpower the demon so that the first angel could then get through and deliver the revelation to Daniel. This is, this is amazing. This is ridiculous. According to this, there are things that I have prayed, things that you have prayed, that God has said yes straight away. But because of satanic opposition, we have never seen the outcome. It could just be that we have given up way too early. Last one. Our prayers can change God's mind. If you have a question, see Tim Neal. So um, I should say this. I should say this. Um, there is really quickly, if you're not a church person, this won't make sense. But if you've been in church for a while, there's kind of this, this spectrum of like Arminian free will versus Calvinistic, you know, God's sovereignty. I am more... I very much agree with Luther who talked about what he describes as the bondage of the will. That means that Satan has blinded the hearts and minds of men and women. Until God opens their eyes, they will not believe. Faith is a gift from God. Now, you can disagree with that. I don't really mind. But you just need to know I'm at this end, right? At the sovereign end. But I refuse to let this one doctrine of the sovereignty of God trump everything else I see in the Bible. And this is what we see. Abraham convinced God that if there were 10 righteous people in the city of Sodom, that he should not wipe them out, even though God had previously declared that he would. It's just one example. I have more. Moses convinced God not to wipe out the Israelites for worshipping the golden calf, even though God had previously declared that he would. At a later date, Moses again convinced God not to change his mind in regards to wiping out the Israelites. It's a lot to do with wiping out the Israelites. Okay, righto. Ahab convinced God not to kill him, even though God had told him that he would die. This one's hilarious. Hezekiah, well, it's not hilarious, but it is a little bit funny. Hezekiah convinced God not to allow him to die, even though God had just told him he would die. And then, just in case you weren't sure, and you will not recover. Because there's people recovering from death all over the place. And I just want to be really clear, you're going to die and not recover, just in case. The Ninevites' actions prompted God to change his mind about the destruction that he had promised. Amos convinced God not to bring about two judgments, judgments that he previously declared would take place. The Canaanite woman convinced Jesus to free her daughter from demons, even though Jesus had previously declared that he'd not come for her. I've got about 30 examples I could give you. You'll be bored, but if you want to, I can give you a link to them. There is just example after example after example in the Bible of where God says, I will do this. And people are like, God, I don't want you to do this. Can you do this? And God often, not always, but often says, okay. What do you do with that? Philip Yancey said this, three times God commanded Jeremiah to stop praying because God wanted no alteration in his plans to punish a rebellious nation. Prayer had, after all, softened God's resolve before. 
God is praying, God is commanding Jeremiah, stop praying. I know I'm merciful. I know I can change my mind. Stop praying. I know if you keep praying, I will eventually give in to you. This is crazy. Andrew Murray, a Calvinist, said, The blessing of prayer is that you can ask and receive what you will. The highest exercise in the glory of prayer is that persevering um, importunity can prevail and obtain what God at first could not and would not give. Ian Bounds, prayer affects God more powerfully than his own purposes. This is crazy quotes, by the way. God's will, words and purposes are all subject to review when the mighty potencies of prayer come in. How mighty, um, how mighty prayer is with God may be seen as he readily sets aside his own fixed and declared purposes in answer to prayer. And Charles Spurgeon, again a Calvinist, said this, If you are sure it is the right thing for which you are asking, plead now, plead at noon, plead at night and plead on. With cries and tears, spread out your case, order your arguments, back up your pleas with reasons. Urge the precious blood of Jesus, bring out the atoning sacrifice, point to Calvary and list the priest who stands on the right hand of God and resolve in your very soul that if souls not be saved, if your family not be blessed, if your own zeal not be revived, yet you will die with the plea on your lips and with the appealing wish on your spirits. We have so often given up because we think God has said, or God has said, no. God has said, this is what will happen. God has said, no. God has said, no, this is how it's going to happen. To finish our diagram, just because I've got a little bit of OCD, this is basically what God's saying. Our next slide. Oh, did that, did we not do a slide for that? Or have you already done it? That's okay, don't worry about it. Well, you can do it just for fun. There you go, it's done. Okay, good. Um, this is what I know. I want to be really careful to say I am not in any way trying to argue that God will always say yes. That would be stupid. Anyone who's even spoken to a three-year-old knows that you can't always say yes. But at the same time, this idea that prayer doesn't affect things is also crazy. We have not got that from the Bible. It's crept into church culture, it's crept into our belief system and it holds us back. And prayer has become nothing more than a means of personal transformation. Is it a means of personal transformation? Yes. But there is a God on the other side of our prayers who loves us and cares for us and wants to work in our behalf. Now, some of us have come here tonight, probably all of us if we're honest, and there is something where you feel like you just need God to do. And you thought, well, God, you know, you might have said no, or maybe nothing's happened, or maybe whatever. Jacob wrestled with God all night. And then eventually God commanded him, let go. It is daybreak. And what did Jacob do? He disobeyed God and said, no, I'm not letting go. I'm not letting go. You are the God. I'm not letting go until you bless me. So what's God do? How dare you? No, he doesn't. He says, okay, I'll bless you. 
And there is example after example in the Bible where people refuse to let go and they say, God, I know you've said this, but I'm just pleading with you. I'm not going to take no for an answer. I know you can say no, but right now I just have this sense I've got to get through to you, God. I'm going to keep asking. I'm going to keep seeking. I'm going to keep knocking until you finally say yes. And to our surprise, often, not always, but often God can even change his mind and give us what we ask for. Let me give you one last example. In the garden of um, Gethsemane, where Jesus was about to be crucified, just before he was about to be crucified, he prays to God. And you would expect, well, God, give me peace. God, give me courage. God, we know about the plan. The plan's been set in time for the, you know, before the history of the world, before creation even began. You knew, God, that the, the, the lamb would have to be slain. You knew the blood would have to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. You know, God, the law has to be fulfilled. You know the prophecies have to come to pass. God, you know all of this. I know all of this. God, give me peace. Give me courage. But that's not what he prays. He says to his father... Take this cup from me. In other words, change your mind. I am sweating blood and I am freaking out. And yes, I love humanity. But to think that I have to go to the cross and cop the wrath of God to be separated from you, I am asking you, God, there must be another way. Seek, find whatever you do, God, find another way. But God, if you say no, I will do your will, your will will be done. There is nothing wrong with saying to God, change your mind. There is nothing wrong with saying to God, bring this to pass. But ultimately Jesus said, I will do your will. My view is that a lot of us go to God with an expectation that God is going to say no. And that maybe every now and again, there's this little you know, story off in the distance where someone got a prayer answered. I mean, there's little everyday prayers, like someone found a car park, but really, let's be honest. I mean, non-Christians find car parks all the time. We don't need the God of the universe to find a car park. I'm not saying he doesn't answer those prayers, but seriously, like if that's the best God can do, whatever, Right? But we often go to God saying, okay, well, God, I don't really think this is going to work. You're probably going to say no, but every now and again, maybe there might be a yes. I think the position of the Bible is that God's default position is he wants to say yes. And every now and again, he has to say no. Why? Because he's a loving father and he cares for his kids. But there was a no that he had to say. And that no, 2,000 years ago, when he said no to Jesus in the garden, was the hardest no he's ever said. He said no to his own son, who's saying, take this cup from me, who's sweating blood, who's been betrayed, who's been broken, who's been, like everything's about to happen to him. And the father looks down and he says, I, I can't say yes. I want to say yes, but I can't say yes. 2,000 years ago, Jesus copped a no so that we could be forgiven. Tonight, as we celebrate communion, 
we are celebrating the fact that we have a saviour who went to the cross on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, right now we just declare that we are the sinners that you sent your son for. We are the sinners that you said no to your son for. And Jesus, we're sorry for what you had to go through. We, we don't even really understand what happened, Jesus. But in this moment, we just want to remember that what you did for us was not some small act. It was the most difficult thing ever. And you paid for our sin, and we're grateful. Amen.